This afternoon we're going to practice the Brahma Vihara, the divine abode of equanimity practice. The Pali word, the old Indian word is upekka. And it's the fourth in the series that we've been doing in the afternoon. Um, there's loving kindness, metta. There's compassion, karuna, mudita, that I think John did yesterday, which is empathetic joy. And then we come to this fourth quality of heart, uh, balance or equanimity. I to talk a little bit about <clears throat> what equanimity is, and that will help us understand the phrases we might use to cultivate equanimity. So equanimity, um, the way I understand it and the way I experience it, I'll start there. Um, in a way, it's a type of love that is born out of wisdom and understanding. And so it's not that the first three don't have wisdom or understanding in them, but they're a very natural uh, wish, the compassion, the loving kindness, the empathetic joy, the wish for good things, the wish for beings to be happy, to be uplifted, the wish for good outcomes. And that would be a kind of a, a natural response to want good things for people, for animals, for the planet. When I experience equanimity, that wish softens, the wish for goodness softens. And I love what is. And it takes a while for that loving what is to become, to be coming from a place of uh, kindness and understanding. And that Brahma Vihara, loving what is, loving how things actually are, it helps clean up the other three because sometimes I'll have preferences hidden in the wanting for good things, the wanting for people to be happy, uh, the heartache when, ha when you see somebody suffering. In that, there's some struggle sometimes against the way things actually are. And then those, all, all the Brahma Viharas mature so that they actually can meet thing, uh, all circumstances. But the development of upekka, the development of equanimity, is a training for the heart to love the way things actually are. It's not that you love the way things are as if I prefer it this way, but I understand that things are like this. So one of my first great lessons in equanimity as a, as a force of love came when I was working in a shelter for homeless and abused teenagers. And so there was a sort of steady trickle in of teenagers when their families were breaking down. And so there'd be some pla safe place for them to go. There was a shelter north of Seattle that I worked in. And it was very easy for compassion to see, oh my God, you know, please come in and please be safe. And you'd hear about the stories of what this teenager had just endured and hear about the heartache and the breakdown of their family and the stress. The heart would you know, be so moved by everyone's story. And of course you'd want uh, only good things to happen for this teenager and the whole family. 
And then being young and kind of new at it, um, I would get very invested in this teenager's well-being and be part of the fuel of why I would come to service uh, to work for the shelter. And we'd put together a case plan and it looked like we were going to finally establish this teenager in a, um, in a great place with, a, with their favorite aunt, for example, or they would get enrolled in community college and we would work really hard to kind of make life better for this, uh, this person. And then something would happen and it would all fall apart. Just there was something we didn't quite land, some way that that teenager couldn't step into the plan we had and I would become distraught. I couldn't stand to watch it. And so my heart would ache over seeing the continued pain. But I looked around at the other people who had been doing it a lot longer than I had, and they would feel that. They would feel like, oh, okay, yeah, that's sad, but let's keep going. And for me, it was hard to keep going because I would be hit with uh, how hard it is actually to help somebody from the outside, how much you work from the outside and you can't actually no matter how hard you work, you can't actually um, make somebody happy from the outside. People have their journey. People have their work. People have their path. And it comes with challenges and it comes with blessings. And then the love over time, when I worked with the social workers and the nurses and the other people who were much more accustomed to it than I was, their love was steady. Their love was even. They weren't uh, seduced into great excitement when good things would happen and then feel crash, uh, crash afterwards when something unfortunate would happen. They were able to love in a very steady way and care for these teenagers no matter what happened. And sometimes the kids would come to us and things would get worse. They would, um, the law might catch up with them. They might have like uh, um, robbed somebody before they came to the shelter. So they would meet us at the shelter and then actually have to go to jail. And again, my heart would kind of sink with that. But <clears throat> those who knew those kids well said, it's, they've met us, like I love them. I'm not gonna love them less because things have gotten worse for them. And I'm not gonna be crushed under the hardship of what I'm witnessing. I know the best outcome for this kid is if I stay steady whether they go up or whether they go down, whether they get happier or whether they get sadder. My love is not dependent upon things working out better and I'm not breaking down because things are getting harder. And they found like an even love. And so I was in my young 20s when I was first witnessing this and it was a lot of pain to be next to, to witness uh, when I was in the shelter. And then I tried the immature response of, Temple, just care less. And that didn't help either, it didn't feel right. It's like, that. I don't wanna care less, but I don't think I can take all these rises and falls, these ups and these downs. But over time, I learned that I was setting myself up for wishing things to be great and then feeling heartache when they weren't. And I also got to see that the, when kids walked in the door, there were no easy solutions. Some things were, you know, some things were easy, but the real happiness and the real well-being was going to take time. And so I would pace myself with that and understand that this person walking in the door, it's not to my heroic efforts to make this person happier. It, if this teenager doesn't uh, end up in a good situation, it's not because I didn't try hard enough. 
That's the path of burnout, thinking it's my responsibility to make somebody happy. But I could participate. I definitely could be on, the, on their team. But so much of what was really going to make them happy or really going to continue their, their anguish was what was going on inside of them and how they were meeting it and what they had to develop inside. And that was the process that the social workers and the nurses and the people working in the shelter, they would align themselves with this human being, this other, this teen in the shelter, and help them make better choices, help them learn, help them grow. And they would even understand it's going to take some ups and downs for this person to learn about life and then start making wiser choices. And so when someone would go down in their happiness or well-being, it wasn't necessarily automatically a bad thing. Could you stay steady and love somebody even when they were going through a struggle, even when they were going through a difficult part of their life? And maybe not automatically call that a bad thing, a bad situation. It's just part of their lives they're going to have to wake up and meet. And how could you help them meet that? And maybe if I suspended calling it good or bad, I could pace myself and say, what's really happening here? And so the love was, in some ways, as I developed it, more pure, more steady. I would love this teenager coming into the shelter, no matter what. Maybe they would come in and immediately there'd be some incredible uh, salvation. They would walk in, they would have a, a benevolent relative, they would go there within hours. It's like, great, that's wonderful. And then they might show up the next day and realize they can't live with that relative. Okay, pacing myself, steady. This person's on a journey this person has a life, and we're going to love them each step, whether they're going into um, great fortune or misfortune. I'm not going to have that um, lower or affect or disturb the love I have for them. And that takes time to really cultivate that type of uh, steadiness with other beings. It takes wisdom to know that the real act of getting stronger and getting more awake and getting happier is not just about having a string of good experiences. None of us can keep that up. The real cultivation is welcoming people to be wiser, to be more able to meet the ups and downs of life, and joining them in that process, being a, an ally to someone, while they go through the ups and downs of life, learning, hopefully, to wake up. And maybe it takes time. And do you have the patience for someone's actual journey of life. Anyways, um, that's an example where I started tuning into uh, upekka, equanimity, versus the ones I knew earlier, which is celebration, the empathetic joy when people had uh, great fortune, or the compassion and feeling um, my heart vibrate when I really understood the suffering for myself or another being. And then just the general good-naturedness of loving-kindness, of metta. Developing equanimity, developing balance. You don't get to balance by reducing the amount your heart cares. You open your heart, but then you really support it with wisdom and understand that the greatest outcome sometimes has to go through ups and downs for a good outcome to really come, like a really secure, beautiful outcome 
might require ups and downs, and we really don't know. So I'm going to stay steady in my love no matter what happens. And that, no matter what happens, lends a type of pacing and balancing and evenness to the care. When I was in the shelter, sometimes compassion would be strong. I could really hold being with the families and being with the stress. And when I couldn't hold it with compassion, I would sort of fall back and there'd be nothing to catch me. And when I learned about equanimity, it was another place to rest back into, this is the way things are, things are like this. Can I keep my heart open and just say things are like this? This is how things are today. When I was able to do that, it gave me two places to go when meeting difficult situations. One was recognizing the challenges that were happening for people, myself. Another is to just say, it is like this. My childhood was like this. It was full of, it was a mix. It was a mix of blessings and challenges. I don't need it to have been different. I'm finding peace with my past. I'm finding peace with the present. Not by caring less, but by understanding it better. And in that, no matter what the future is, I'll keep my heart open. Whether we're going into hard times, whether we're going into good times, I can keep my heart open And what helps keep it open is wisdom, not this unshakable optimism that things will always turn out um, pleasant or positive. But I'll stay loving. I'll stay loving no matter what happens. My loving isn't uh, dependent upon things being pleasant or working out for the best. And it actually becomes a very powerful form of love. But we need sometimes to have experience to know how to stabilize ourselves for the true human ride. The true human ride has ups and downs. The true human ride takes twists and turns. The true human ride goes through hard times and uh, beautiful times. The true human ride is so amazing. Can we be steady and balanced in our love and not be seduced into hoping it will turn pleasant or positive? Um, And that's where this power of equanimity comes in. Another way I've gotten to think about equanimity is sometimes um, I think about the First and the Second World War and all the, the incredible suffering that went on. And then I step back with sort of a wise view and thinking about uh, human consciousness and how much before World War I and World War II, people were nationalistic, they were focused more on um, themselves and their local communities, and they, had, they entertained um, ideas of there being an enemy and an opponent, and they kind of felt pride over here and we're better than those people over there. So while that thinking was, was possible uh, for humans, it led into war. And then as humans woke up further and got more um, uh, capacity for weaponry, you suddenly had the amazing uh, destruction of the First World War. In response to that, they created something called the League of Nations, which wasn't a very powerful agreement, but there was an attempt, like, can we not do this again? But the commitment wasn't as strong in the League of Nations after World War I. 
And that led to World War II. And all of that destruction led to a much more courageous declaration of the United Nations. We probably could not have actually gotten into the United Nations if we hadn't gone through the hardship of World War I and World War II. I wish we could. I wish we were a more noble species and we could have recognized this early on. But sometimes the, the, the wise outcome actually has to go through difficult times to forge the type of convictions that are then steady in the faces of true ups and downs, in the faces of true challenges. So anyways, that's a sort of a large scale um, holding I have of, uh, of human history and the fact that we're not fighting wars on that scale. We have the technology, but we haven't fought a war where uh, tens of millions of people have died uh, rapidly in a few years. And I think it actually was necessary. And that starts to get a little bit at what um, Sylvia was pointing at today with reflections on the difficult person, how we can have love for difficult people, is we need more understanding that people are probably doing their best. And finally we can understand people are doing their best and this is what the best looks like. And it leads uh, us to offer forgiveness and understanding. And equanimity is born from that. It's born from understanding, not from a type of um, well-intended but somewhat um, simplistic understanding that things could be better. Can't we all just get along? That's a beautiful wish of the heart. But to actually get along, we have to grow. And sometimes we have to struggle for that growth to mature. And that's where equanimity, the pacing, the understanding, the wise love, that's actually not, um, it's not uh, threatened or weakened just because there's, there are challenges. You only have to see challenges as a negative thing. It's just, this is a time of great challenge. Well, let's see what happens from this. As a lighter example, <laughs> when I was working in the shelter um, for homeless teenagers, I worked for a woman who was directing the program and she was an amazing psychologist and she could work with these kids in ways I was just in awe of her insight into um, all the kids that were coming and the staff that were working there. And she had these two twin daughters and they were about five at the time I met them. One day I came into work and her daughter, one of her daughters was there and she stuck out her foot with a shoe on it and, un, and the laces were untied. And she's like, just sort of like, <laughs> tie my shoe. And uh, this woman, I mean, brilliant, she said, I taught you how to tie your shoe this morning and I will never tie your shoe again. <laughs> and the look on her daughter's like, oh, how could you? I'm your daughter, that's my shoe. What are you doing? And she's like, no, it's now your responsibility to tie your shoe. And I felt like, oh my God, I'll, I'll, I'll tie the shoe. I can, like the look on this five-year-old, like, oh my God, that's such a painful look. Like she's really cultivated that guilt response. And then she turned around and she tied her shoe. And I've reflected upon that as a symbolic moment, like, it would be easier if somebody else took care of me. 
It'd be easier if all of you agreed, you will do whatever is possible to make Temple as happy as possible day in and day out. And even with amazing people like you that come to retreats and practice and practice and practice, my happiness is actually best achieved through my development, the choices I make. Even if I had a thousand people, 10,000 people trying their best to have me be happy, if I can't meet my own experiences and develop my own capacity to be patient and wise and learn as I go, even having ups and downs, well, definitely having ups and downs, my greatest outcome would be my own development. And so what I want for all of you, sure, treat me kindly. Thank you. <laughs> but root, root for me to wake up. Root for me to have my journey, even learn from hard times so that I understand how to actually be happy and go from ideas um, and dreams of being happy to actually being happy. And the way that's done is by courage and patience, learning as I go, developing my heart so that the happiness is stable. You all cannot stabilize my happiness. I can stabilize my happiness and you all can support me in that. I cannot make you happy. I can make you laugh because I've got a good sense of humor. But that's about it. You know, <laughs> There's a limit to how much I can do from the outside. But I can love you and I can support you and I can encourage you to really make a string of better choices, I can to develop your capacities inside. And that's where my greatest wish for you actually gets born. Your happiness will come through my patient, steady encouraging of you to look into your life, to see what's true, to challenge uh, old beliefs that are not helpful. Your greatest outcome comes from your work. And then I get to support you and love you while you're doing your work. But uh, that gets born again out of this balanced, wise approach to love. So in understanding that, some of the um, phrases we have are, um, this is a phrase, you, the, 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 they're a bit long and they might may or may not work for you, but um, your happiness and your sorrow come from your actions, not from my wishes for you. So that's something that you can repeat. Your happiness and sorrow come from your actions, not from my wishes for you. If this uh, practice comes out of the tradition and cultures that believe in karma, another is that um, as you consider another being, um, the love you have for them, you might repeat this phrase and it has sort of a, a holding in karma You are the, uh, let me get the actual phrase for you. Glad I did this.
We are the heir to our actions. Our joys and our sorrows arise within our own hearts. We are the heir of our own actions. Our happiness and unhappiness depend upon our actions, not upon our wishes. So that's a bit of a long phrase, but it captures that sense that as you consider another being, you don't wish for them to be happy, you wish for them to make choices that lead to their happiness. You are the heir to your actions. You are the heir to your choices. Simpler phrases that might actually encapsulate this is as I'm, <clears throat> wherever I'm pointing my heart, as if it's in the past or um, considering people in the present, I'll say a phrase like, this is how things were. This is how things are. So I consider anybody in my family and I say, yeah, this is how things were. If I consider their past. If I consider them here in the present. This is how things are. Things are like this. And I'll repeat that. Things are like this. Things are like this. And I open my heart to myself or to other beings and say, this is how things are. Things are like this. It's caring, but it's acknowledging this is how things are. Softening any preferences that it be otherwise. This is how things are. It doesn't mean that I don't care about how things turn out, but at least in this moment, I can love the way things are. I can meet the way things are with love. This is how things are. This is how things were. Those are a little bit shorter, and maybe for some of you that will be more accessible. The other one, you are the heir to your actions. Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. If you can remember that long phrase, that encapsulates the same uh, approach to kindness, the same approach to equanimity. So let's try it for a little bit. We'll try this equanimity practice. And then see um, if you find a way into it, if it's something that you enjoy doing, explore it a little bit. So practically speaking, the easiest person to offer equanimity for is in the category we call neutral, the person where you don't have your own needs um, already established. So it might be people in this room, people you uh, feel a benevolence towards, you, know, you wish them well, but yet you don't have a struggle yet. You don't have needs, you don't have your own um, agenda for them. And it might be people in your life if they are easier to access. So you bring someone to mind, someone you don't have um, a struggle with, for or against. And see if you can repeat this phrase 
You are the heir to your actions. Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your choices, not upon my wishes for you. You are the heir to your actions. Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your choices, not upon my wishes. In the short form, you might say, your happiness is up to you. And to make sure that you still care, you might say, I'll steady my love for you, yet your happiness is up to you.
another way into equanimity and the steady love of equanimity, considering this same neutral person This person you can imagine and yet don't know very well. Imagining they will have easy days and challenging days. And see if you can say with kindness, life is like this. Life is like this. Let's not call it good or bad. Life is like this. Life is like this.
guiding your heart to a patient love, a patient kindness that can stay steady in its kindness while someone else figures out their own life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.